This is Democracy on the Move. Democracy on the Move is a podcast tribute to the people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its original promise of democracy. This episode is being released on Sunday, October 23, 2022. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and thank you for joining us. In today's short podcast, I'll talk about the New American Revolution. Yes, I believe we are on course to a new revolution. My biggest concern is over what form it will take and whether it will destroy our republic. But first, a couple of announcements. Our right to vote is a cornerstone in our democracy, but sometimes it's difficult to figure out what's going to be on the ballot. And you may not want to wait until you get to the voting booth before you make those big decisions, so it's worthwhile to prepare for it. Check out vote411.org. You'll have a wealth of nonpartisan information about the candidates and issues that you'll see on your ballot this November. Vote411.org is sponsored by the League of Women Voters. And, you know, it doesn't take a genius to figure out that money injects corruption into our government. So if you're as concerned about it as I am, then check out Move to Amend. Move to Amend is an organization dedicated to passing a constitutional amendment to end corporate rule and the corrupting influence of big money in elections. You can find Move to Amend online at movetoamend.org. The first shots of the American Revolution took place in what is now called the Battle Green in Lexington, Massachusetts. The date was April 19, 1775. The previous night, Paul Revere and William Dawes rode through the town of Lexington, warning the Minutemen and militia that the British Army was on the march. Dr. Samuel Prescott joined them, and the three rode off toward Concord. A British patrol intercepted the men shortly after they left Lexington, but Prescott managed to escape and was able to warn the Concord militia of the approaching army. The story may seem romantic, and indeed, many Americans who were educated in America can recite the opening lines of Henry Wadsworth Longfellow's poem commemorating that midnight ride. You know, it's the poem that begins with the lines, Listen, my children, and you shall hear of the midnight ride of Paul Revere. Longfellow was born many years after the echoes of the revolution had faded, so sitting comfortably in what became a nation governed by the people, a republic, he decided to focus on the romance of the revolution. But the hard reality was quite a different story. There really wasn't much romance. The revolutionaries were sworn enemies of the crown. Had the revolution failed, they would have been publicly hung. Their property would have been seized. Their families would have had to flee for their lives and live out the rest of their lives in destitute poverty. Not much romance in that, is there? Another hard reality is the same hard reality in any war. People died. Being killed by a bullet was perhaps the best way to go. Many were not so lucky, though. They starved to death, or they froze to death. Many were tortured. Many were burned alive. Look, war is ugly. Revolutions are ugly. And though we humans like to hear romantic stories of bravery and songs of heroes— The images that these works of art paint in our collective minds can render us blind to the actual cost of war. Regarding the war itself, our rejection of the British Empire was successful, but we were in many ways extremely lucky. We took on the world's only superpower of the day, and we won. Our success was due in a large part to the highly skilled commanders that knew what risks to take and what risks to avoid. From a tactical perspective, we outmaneuvered the enemy and ultimately forced them to surrender. 
But we were lucky in another way that most people really don't talk about. Winning the war was tactics, but carving out a whole new nation from scratch, that was far more difficult and had consequences that reached all across time, all the way to the present day. The luck we had was that people behind the revolution had more than just battle tactics on their mind. They knew that creating a new nation, a nation governed by the people, a republic, was going to take a lot of hard work. And up to that point in modern history, it had never been done. The concept of people governing themselves was just as revolutionary as the war itself. And there were many at the time that were convinced it could not be done. Many wanted to go back to a system of government similar to the monarchy we'd just thrown out. Many believed that people simply were not capable of governing themselves. Ultimately, and fortunately, the notion of a republic won out over all the hesitation. We were very lucky in that highly intelligent and gifted men were there and willing to serve, men who not only took part in the war itself, but had an idea of freedom, of government by the people, a republic. The list of these men is long, but it includes people like Washington, Adams, Madison, Jefferson, Hamilton, Franklin, Hancock, and so on. They weren't just revolutionaries in a fighting sense, but just as significant, they were revolutionaries in an intellectual sense. They knew that getting rid of the British was just the beginning. Building a nation was far more important. I titled today's podcast, Revolution and Then What? Hanging it out there is a question because I really want to focus on the and then what portion. In other words, what comes after the revolution? There's a lot of talk these days, particularly on the far right, about having another revolution, a new American revolution. Many eager participants have even dressed up for the occasion, what with their camo and armor and guns strapped across their chests. They all seem itching for a fight, but I'm confident that not one of them has given anything but a simplistic thought about the and then what portion of the new American revolution. They just want a revolution because they're angry, they're scared, or maybe they're just eager to prove some twisted sense of manhood by shooting other men. Well, why is this? Why did they not think about the and then what portion of the revolution? Well, think about it. Where's the romance in that? Where's the chance to prove your patriotism? Where's the opportunity to play the part of hero? After all, do you remember any romantic poems from Longfellow about the fierce debates that took place during the Constitutional Convention? When you think back in the revolution, do you think about the battles, the tactics, the winning strategies in the field? Or do you think about the highly educated men who already anticipated winning the war and were quietly working on constructing a system of government under which we live today? Well, I'm sure some people do think about the intellectual revolution, but most don't. And I believe that's the problem these days. There are simply not enough people thinking about the and-then-what portion of the revolution. They're too busy thinking about the romance, the glory, the opportunity to prove their manhood, the ability to kick some liberal ass. So they take the simple path. They don't get all intellectual about it. Intellectuals are not to be trusted anyway. Their simplistic answer to the and-then-what amounts to making Donald Trump the ruler. Make America great again, whatever that means. But I'm getting a little cynical here, so allow me to spend a few moments talking about the roots of this new American revolution, because I honestly believe that the roots are planted in solid ground, but overall that tree of liberty is growing sideways. Now I believe that the motivations for this new American revolution is not too different from the motivation for the original revolution that began in 1775. That is, when it comes to the ruling class versus the ruled class, the ruled class is losing big time. There is a growing disparity between the haves and the have-nots. 
As Senator Bernie Sanders likes to point out, the top 1% now own more wealth than the bottom 92%, and the 50 wealthiest Americans own more wealth than the bottom half of American society. And the situation gets worse by the year. According to Senator Sanders, in 1978, the top one-tenth of 1% owned about 7% of the nation's wealth. In 2019, the latest year that the data was available, they owned nearly 20%. That's an increase by a factor of 200. Unbelievably, the two richest people in America, Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk, now own more wealth than the bottom 40% of Americans combined. Now, I'm not one to get on anyone's case for being rich. I think it's okay to have a lot of money. But consider this idea. There's something wrong when the average person today has not been given a raise since the 1980s, adjusted in today's dollars, while the upper class continues to gain more wealth. When you have families that can hardly afford to feed their kids, much less send them to college, you develop a permanent underclass that cannot break out. And the fact that many of our elected representatives continue to cut school funding, it makes it even less likely that the next generation will break out. And then you bring up this myth called the American dream to convince them that if they do not make it to the upper class, well, then that's their fault. It's not the fault of any rich person. And here's the most significant part of the tragedy. Our government has been taken over by the wealthy and therefore no longer feel obligated to answer to the people. Now, if you don't believe me, have a look at the data. As cited by the group Represent.us, Professor Martin Guilens of Princeton University and Benjamin Page of Northwestern University looked at more than 20 years' worth of data to answer a very simple question. Does the government represent the people? Now, just for nostalgic purposes, recall what Benjamin Franklin famously said after emerging from the Constitutional Convention back in 1787 when asked if we were going to live under a republic or a monarchy, he replied, quote, a republic if you can keep it. While it's debatable as to whether he actually said those words, everybody gets the point. A republic is a system of government where supreme power is held by the people and their elected representatives. But today, the problem is that our elected representatives no longer express the will of the people. From that perspective, we no longer have a republic. So back to the study by Professors Guilens and Page, they concluded that the number of Americans for or against any idea has no impact, no impact on the likelihood that Congress will make it law. So whether the American people want something or don't want something, it makes no difference to Congress. They no longer listen to the people. They listen to their corporate and private donors, and they do what the corporate and private donors ask of them. Whether or not it aligns with the sentiment of we the people is purely coincidental. So how can we say that we have a republic, a system of government by the governed, if our representatives in Congress do not listen to we the people? So yeah, are people mad? You bet they are. The government no longer works for them. And as I said a moment ago, the motivation for a new American revolution is not too different from the original American revolution. That motivation is taxation without representation. Now, does that sound familiar? It should. It was one of the battle cries of the original American Revolution. But here's what concerns me. 
This new American revolution being pushed by the more radical elements in our society, you know, the people storming the Capitol and screaming about political violence being necessary, is that there appears to be no and then what attached to the revolution. The only and then what I can see amounts to an extraordinarily bad idea. And then what has become, and then we put Trump in charge, or someone like Trump. The danger here is that Trump, or any of the Trump wannabes, have mastered the art of distraction. With great skill, they have distracted many Americans from the real motivation for a new American revolution and turned it into anger against immigrants, LGBTQ, liberals, Democrats, godless non-Christians, and so on. It's all a big con job because at heart, the motivation for a new American revolution is that our government is no longer a republic. It has become an oligarchy, that is, ruled by the rich. And the distraction is intentional. Those who run the oligarchy really don't want you to see the truth. The truth is that they're the ones actually running the show. They're the ones that own most of our members of Congress, both parties, by the way, Republican and Democrat. Their concerns, and only their concerns, are what Congress implements as law. And the rest of us don't count. And to pacify us, they distract us with manufactured issues to keep us fighting amongst ourselves. Now this nefarious plan runs pretty deep. If they can distract us, we the people, from our real grievance, and at the same time convince us that one of their own, Trump in this case, can be our savior, then they will have effectively quashed any threat to their rule. They rigged the game to make themselves look like our saviors when all along, we the people are the targets of their great con. As an example, the Tax Reduction Act of 2017 reduced corporate taxes to unprecedented levels. As part of the justification for these tax cuts, Trump guaranteed us that the corporations would save a ton of money and would reinvest that extra money into bonuses and raises for their employees. Trump framed this whole operation to make him and all the other corporate masters look like heroes to the average American. But reality turned out quite different, however. The reality is that these companies bought back their own stock, which inflated the stock portfolios of many of the company managers who either owned company stock outright or had options on company stock, further inflating their own personal wealth. This was all done silently, out of public view. It didn't get much airtime in the news. People continued to believe Donald Trump is their hero, even though their wallets were being picked from behind. As another example, right here in the state of Missouri, Governor Mike Parson, when faced with a huge budget surplus, decided to provide a tax break to people. Now, according to the Springfield News Leader, that's the hometown newspaper for Springfield, Missouri, those making $22,000 or less per year will save a whopping $3 per year. And those making more than $552,000 per year will receive a reduction amounting to $9,578 per year. So let me ask you this. Who do you think really benefited from this tax break? Now, Governor Parson could have cut state sales tax on groceries and done far more good for the average Missourian, but instead he chose to provide a gift for those already at the top and portray himself as a hero. This is the grift. This exacerbates the wealth gap and intensifies the call for a new American revolution. But most of our wannabe revolutionaries, you know, the ones dressed in camo and storming the Capitol, they won't see it that way. They refuse to see it that way. They will continue to feel the economic heat, but they will blame it on immigrants, LGBTQ, wokeism, Democrats, liberals. 
but they won't blame it on the very individuals who continue to screw them and then hijack their anger to turn against fellow Americans. So when people don't understand the roots of their own revolution, how are they going to answer the question, and then what, after a revolution takes place, assuming they win this revolution? The answer, as I've said, is that they will install an oligarch and give him supreme power, which is what the oligarchs wanted all along. And because of the intolerance woven into the rallying cry, you know, all that talk about LGBTQ, Black Lives Matter, immigrants, godless non-Christians, and so on, these revolutionaries will support fascism, all in hopes of recovering from their current economic challenges. That's all. That's their plan. That's their answer to the question, and then what? So personally, I understand the motivation for a new American revolution, but there's real danger in the storm the capital and burn it all down mentality. So the question now is, where do we go from here? How do we fix America without killing it? Well, for a lot of folks out there, the answer is simple. They've already been working on it. They've been working on it for years. They've been taking the approach of answering the and then what question up front before taking action. This is, in my opinion, the only way to realize a successful new American revolution. It's a revolution that's constitutional in the sense that it remains perfectly legal and, most importantly, nonviolent. And it doesn't spread hatred for fellow Americans. The thing I love about the Constitution, despite its many warts, is that it was made to be amended. People can change this country. We can have a new American revolution without violence and without shredding the Constitution. As an example, think about the Citizens United Supreme Court decision of 2010. It had the effect of equating corporations to people insofar as the right to free speech is concerned. Tragically, it opened the floodgates of money into political elections. It allowed oligarchs to buy off politicians with impunity such that congresspeople can ignore their constituents and vote in a way that's consistent with their corporate masters, but not consistent with the will of the people, as I mentioned previously. This Citizens United decision robbed us of our republic. So it must be fixed, right? Instead of donning a camel outfit and storming the Capitol, consider joining a coordinated effort to pass a constitutional amendment that uproots Citizens United and makes our representatives answer to the people. You've heard me talk about the organization known as Move to Amend before. They've been working on this issue for quite some time. Well, they could use your help. If nothing else, subscribe to their newsletter and show up for the demonstrations. Write your congressperson and make them aware of a new constitutional amendment. Make your voice heard. As another example, consider holding another constitutional convention. State-level constitutional conventions are possible in 44 of our 50 states. For example, next month, the state of Missouri will vote on whether to hold a constitutional amendment. Now, those of you living in Missouri may want to give this some consideration. And we can have a U.S. Constitutional Convention as well, believe it or not. Article 5 of the U.S. Constitution describes how to go about it. Now, that may sound too radical for many people. It could disrupt things even more. But it's not out of the question. We can do it. It's our Constitution. It's what our forefathers wanted. The most precious weapon of all in our arsenal of democracy is the vote. Now, I know it sounds trite because many people feel their vote doesn't count, and to a large degree, I believe they're right. Districts have been so gerrymandered as to make the outcome a preordained conclusion, but that doesn't mean it's game over for our republic. We can work on ways to make our votes really count. Personally, my favorites are the implementation of open primaries, where the top four or five go to the general election, and ranked choice voting. Now, these two topics, open primaries and ranked choice voting, I'll tell you what, both Democrats and Republicans, for the most part, are in agreement. They hate it. 
They will both collaborate and tell you how ranked choice voting is overly complicated, undemocratic, and anti-American. They will fight these concepts because they know the truth. That once the power is returned to the people, their corporate masters and rich donors will pull their money. But again, you don't need to storm the Capitol to force the issue. You simply need to commit yourself to joining one of the numerous organizations dedicated to fighting for basic voting rights. Look, restoring our nation to a true republic won't come quickly. It won't come easily. Creating and maintaining a republic is difficult. It's hard work. But it is work that must be done. Our precious democracy didn't come about because people stayed home and did nothing but complain. It came about because people stood up and took action, not so much for themselves, but for all their friends and relatives, for their community, and for all future generations. At the end of the day, our nation is all we have. It is our only outpost in a world that is often cold and cruel. And our precious republic is now under assault. The assault is not coming from immigrants, LGBTQ, the woke left, but it's coming from the few people who would take away our economic and social ability to stand up and fight for our rights. It's coming from the people who will try really hard to hijack our anxiety and have us fight amongst ourselves. They would rather that we not answer the question, and then what, but simply fight as part of an aimless and ultimately futile revolution. The only way to put an end to this insanity is to double down on our belief in a true republic, and in the words of Benjamin Franklin, keep it. You've been listening to Democracy on the Move, a tribute to all those people and organizations who dare to reimagine our nation and drive it back to its original promise of democracy. Please tune in each week where we will feature guests and topics that will help keep you in touch with our march toward a more perfect union. If you have any questions or suggestions, or if you'd like to sponsor future episodes, we'd love to hear from you. Just send us an email at info at democracyonthemove.org or contact us on our webpage at democracyonthemove.org slash contact. Democracy on the Move is all one word. Theme music, Murky Waters, performed by El Rey Music, used under license from Shutterstock. I'm Dan Schaefer, your host for today's podcast, and I'd like to thank you for tuning in. It's been my pleasure to be with you today. Please have a safe week ahead, and we hope you tune in again next week. <laughs>